Welcome to the Talleyroom Podcast. I'm Ben Rowley. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the Wentworth by-election and the Victorian state election. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is William Bow. Hello, William. Hello, Ben. And my second guest is Georgia Katchuk. Good day, Ben. So we're just over two weeks away from the by-election for the federal seat of Wentworth in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. 16 candidates have nominated, which is a big number, but not a record, including three independents. A lot of the focus has been on independent candidate Karen Phelps, who's a former president of the Australian Medical Association. Phelps first announced she would be putting the Liberal Party last on her how to vote before changing her mind and saying that she'd put the Labor candidate below the Liberal. We only have limited polling from the seat, but it does suggest that Phelps is neck and neck with Labor, with the centre-left vote in the seat likely to be split among the large number of candidates. And just today, this is we're recording on Thursday, uh, another poll has been released uh, which um, again puts Phelps and the Labor candidate Tim Murray roughly even, but also has an increase in the vote for uh another independent, Lysia Heath. Uh, because of this, preferences are going to be crucial in this by-election and the order of elimination could really determine who makes the final two and whether Dave Sharma holds on to the seat. Georgia, how do you rate uh, Karen Phelps's campaign so far? So, Ben, my background's more uh, digital and traditional comms, so I see it through that lens. When I look at Karen Phelps's campaign, um, I think it ticks a lot of boxes for me in that she does everything you'd do in a 2018 election campaign. She's got fantastic stock imagery. She's got lovely core flutes and style guides. And um, it gives the impression of this really well-oiled machine. But at the end of the day, she doesn't have the Clopamore machine behind her. And so when it comes to the day-to-day execution, whether that's her Facebook posts or her media appearances or um, her, her website and how she's talking about policy, it comes across quite colloquial and undisciplined. And um, you can see some mistakes and cracks occurring, like what happened with the preferencing. So for me, I think there are elements of a really structured, strong campaign, but the actual execution of it um, has left me feeling quite underwhelmed. She's obviously got a high profile in this electorate, but whether she actually... Uh, has the support behind her to run a proper campaign seems like a big open question. Um, William, what are, what are your thoughts from, from far away from observing the campaign about about where it currently stands in terms of the different candidates? Well, I am far away. So, so far as Karen Phelps's campaign has been concerned, I think the preferences issue has been the, the absolutely overwhelming thing. And uh, I think that it's... It, it has hobbled her to a very large extent. Uh, I think she made a major tactical blunder in coming out uh, harder against the Liberal Party. Well, I mean, you know, fair enough that she's coming out against the Liberal Party, but she didn't need to that to turn that into a kind of halfway pro-Labor message. And initially, that was what she was doing, and that was a big blunder, and she obviously immediately recognised that was a big blunder because she did something of a publicity stunt to announce the fact that she'd reversed course. So uh, I think very clearly it came through to her that she'd misstepped very badly there. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, 
superficially, she does appear to be a tremendously attractive candidate so far as the electorate is concerned. She's, you know, ticks a lot of the identity boxes that you'd want to have for a good independent candidate in Wentworth. But uh, I think she she has actually does actually have a certain amount of baggage from her Sydney Council experience. The the manner in which she uh, broke company with Clover Moore and the the haste with which that happened it was almost one nationish. You know, it's like, you know, a couple of months, you know, you see that absolutely like clockwork with every One Nation member of parliament. They're out of the party within a couple of months. Uh, Clover Moore and versus, you know, Karen Phelps, uh, I, I think that it may have sent a signal that she's, you know, not not, not the kind of team player that perhaps she'd be after. So uh, I'm sure she's running a very good looking slick campaign, but I think in an electorate like Wentworth, they expect that. They're used to high, expensive, well-oiled campaigns that look good, that have good digital communication strategies. I think to a certain extent in a seat like this, that, that, that that's a given. It's a necessary precondition to do well, but it's not sufficient. The Clover Moore thing is very interesting because she's not the first councillor in the kind of Clover party to break with Clover Moore, but... Uh, Clover's usually been pretty capable of holding together a majority on that council or at least a plurality. It is interesting. So Clover Moore and Alex Greenwich, who's sort of her ally in this sort of local um, local minor party that they have in the inner city, uh, both endorsed Lysia Heath, uh, who has a much lower profile. She's been involved in campaigns, but she's certainly not uh, got anything like Karen Phelps's. And... Um, I mean, we don't know what the scale of that campaign will be, but the Clover Alex machine actually has a lot of volunteers. It, it has a lot of profile. It presumably has quite a large list of supporters and all those things. And you would think that if if uh, like if they had a high profile candidate like Phelps, that would be that would be um, a winning combination. Yeah, absolutely. I want to focus for a minute about the preference situation because there's there's been lots of by elections where independents are strong, where you expect to see big swings, which the polling definitely indicates that there's going to be a large swing against the against the Liberal Party. There, there, um, you know, looks like they're kind of polling in the 30s or maybe the low 40s uh, compared to over 60% in the last election. So that's certainly happening. But this particular by-election, you have this situation where more than just the regular two candidates have a chance of winning. Uh, depending on how the polling goes, it could be as many as four candidates within in with a chance. And we have this situation where, depending on how those preferences flow amongst the various non-liberal candidates, it could make a big difference about which of them comes into the top two, which could decide whether or not uh, the Liberal Party can hold on. Well, I guess the question is, is Karen Phelps able to finish ahead of Labor? And, uh, I mean, you know, we can talk about Lysia Heath. I suppose she's a dark horse, but I think the most likely thing is that we're talking about a three-horse race here with between Liberal Labor and Karen Phelps. If you look at the poll today, she's lagging behind Labor a little on the primary vote. Part of the issue there is that, you know, she has got a large field of candidates and that's dividing up the non-major party vote quite a lot. In theory, that shouldn't matter too much because independent vote preferences should lock behind other independents. Uh, it's a bad look, though, that Karen Phelps has got a, a Clover Moore-backed independent in the field. I think that reduces her attractiveness as a candidate. Well, it muddies, just, it muddies the kind of independent yeah. independent brand. It does, yes. And it just makes it incrementally that 
more difficult for her to get over her first hurdle, which is to get ahead of Labor. So with this poll today, Labor are on 20.7%. Karen Phelps is under on 17.9%. So Karen Phelps has got a little bit of a hurdle to clear there. The Greens were on 6.6%. I assume more preferences of theirs are going to go to Labor than to Karen Phelps. So Karen Phelps on these numbers would need a reasonably strong flow of preferences from Lysia Heath and other minor candidates to get ahead of that first hurdle and then get ahead of Labor. I think if she does get ahead of Labor, then she's a big show. We've got the Liberals on 43% in this poll. I think that's around about where they'd need to be to win, but no higher. I think if they are on 43% and it is a Liberal versus Karen Phelps contest, then it's pretty much coming down to line ball. But, you know, the alternative scenario is that Karen Phelps does fall short and you end up with a with a final count between Liberal and Labor. While the polls have been showing that if it is a Liberal versus Labor contest on in on the final count, it will be extremely close. They are based on what I think are excessively strong preference flows to Labor. So I, I will be very surprised if Labor, you know, can win the seat, even if they do finish second. In this poll, we've got a 51-49 two-party preferred result, Liberal versus Labor. But I think realistically, Labor aren't going to get as many preferences as this and other polls are accrediting them with. So I think the path to defeat for the Liberals is that Karen Phelps does indeed get ahead of Labor and the Liberal party primary vote is stuck in the very low 40s or lower. Uh, the two polls I've seen are reached top polls with, what, between 700, 800 hmm. people in the sample sizes. How seriously, and they're quite different, the two polls I've seen over the space of, what, two weeks in the past fortnight? Hmm. Hmm. How seriously do you take polls um, of the well, sample size? I think it's a good question because we have seen a lot of unreliability with polls. Hmm. There's sometimes they do a perfectly good job, but... The, they're off and they're not just off in a way that would be explained by small sample size. Uh, so a way I would think of it is um, it adds information on top of what we already know, but we shouldn't take it as, as gospel. So it's, it's important because we don't have a sense of how people like Phelps or Heath would normally poll. I think these polls tell us there is a big swing against the Liberals. There is a sizable share of the electorate that's voting for Phelps. We don't know how sizable that electorate is. We don't know how big that swing is. Uh, I think you're right about the preferences, and I think it's worth drilling in that I think part of the reason that's probably happening is they're just asking people um, how they would preference between these two candidates, but actually they're going to have a 16-person ballot paper to fill out, and the Karen Phelps how to vote, which will be a, a big chunk of the swing vote if it's between Liberal and Labor, is preferencing Liberal over Labor, whereas I suspect a lot of those people might say on the phone, I'll, I'll put Labor ahead of Liberals. So I do suspect, yeah, there might be a stronger preference flow for Labor, but I would look at these polls and go, there is a there is a lot of grey area around. Uh, a three-point gap between Labor and, and Phelps is not enough to say that Labor is leading ahead of Phelps. Mm. Like that, that could easily go the other way. Uh, absolutely. It has to be taken for granted that when we're talking about seat polls, a very thick veneer of caution needs to be applied because they have not had a good record recently. There were five polls from Longman before the Super Saturday by-elections, all of which showed the Liberal National Party very marginally in front, and in fact, Labor won pretty comfortably. So they've, they've got a poor record recently. Um, in terms of the point Georgia made about the difference between the two polls, um, I, I think th th 
there were sort of polls, one poll two weeks ago and another poll now. Uh, This poll's a little bit better for the Liberals. I can believe that. I think that might be a reflection of the sort of early campaign stumbles Karen Phelps has had. It it doesn't trouble me that these two polls have different results because I do think they probably have detected something that's happened between the two results. Taking a step back from that, though, um, uh, there is a lot of reason. The sample size of the Reachtel polls is okay. 800 is, is is a sort of acceptable sample size. Uh, it's not so much that is the issue. It's that the, this electorate is being polled to death. I'm aware of five opinion polls doing the rounds, which most of which have been done because you know a lot of these candidates have got a lot of money. They can afford polling. Yeah. So there's a, there's an orgy of polling going on in Wentworth. Every phone is you know ringing to death, and when, in that environment, it's impossible to do a good phone poll. And we saw something we saw something similar in Longman that people were just stopped answering their phone. And I think you get to a certain point where maybe the earlier polls are more reliable, but you get to a point where we know as much as we can possibly know. And Wentworth is has a lot of demographic attributes that make it hard to poll. It's a young electorate. Young people are hard to poll. Uh, it's, you know, a technologically savvy electorate. They're good at screening out calls they don't want to answer. It's a demographically complicated electorate. You know, you've got a gay community, a Jewish community, all sorts of things going on there. And if some facet of your methodology is over-focusing on some particular subculture within the electorate, then that's going to be a problem. Well, there, there's always there's always been uh, a bit of a problem, particular problem that um, seat polling has had with like places where the Greens are very strong. And this, this area has yeah. some, some of that, but it also has some of those demographic elements that something about young people in the inner city makes it harder. So you could imagine that playing out in Wentworth. And what what comes to my mind is, you know, going back 10 years ago now, when the sort of doctor's wives were supposed to result in the Liberals losing these blue ribbon electorates because of anger about the Iraq war and asylum seekers and all the things that John Howard was doing late in his career. So you were getting polls coming through showing that, that, that Joe Hockey was in big trouble in North Sydney. And it it just didn't transpire. So, you know, there are any number of ways in which this leading this, which we could be being led astray here. So ultimately, I'll be surprised if the polls are proven right. However, they're better than tossing a coin for all that. And it's it is clear that they are picking up the fact, and you know this is intuitively obvious anyway. I guess that there is going to be a big fall in the Liberal Party primary vote, and you know that there are a lot of independent contenders in the fray, and you know the, the big name, well financed, running good campaigns contenders. It's going to be an extremely different result of the last election, and I think I think the question is how much of that saps away at the Liberal primary vote. Are they still able to get into a sort of respectable mid forties position, in which case they'll be safe, or are they bleeding that heavily? And the polls so far, for what they are worth, suggesting that they are bleeding this heavily, that you know perhaps they're into the thirties or at the very least the very low forties, and that's when they're in trouble. I haven't seen the polling, only the reporting on the polling. I haven't seen the questions asked. And the most interesting thing I took from today's polling was the influence, um, the question about Karen Phelps' decision to preference the Liberals. Fifty percent of her supporter base um, were less inclined um, to give her their vote mm. um, because of her decision to preference Libs. Yeah, and I think there's something about putting aside the polls for a minute. There's something just logical about if if you're someone in Karen Phelps's position, you're in an electorate that traditionally votes conservative, 
uh, in the same way that someone like Tony Windsor or Rob Oakshot, many of these people. Sure, you need to win over people who wouldn't consider voting for Labor or Greens in order to win. Mm. But in the end, you also need you need the support of the chunk of that electorate that's never that's never going to vote for the Conservatives. So you need the centre left in that electorate, but then you need a boost on top of that. Sure. So for someone like Phelps in her position, that um, I think you could imagine that she may have alienated some of the centre left part of her base. Um, while also alienating some of the centre-right part of her base. And so it is it is kind of a lose-lose situation for her. And then Tony Windsor comes out today and endorses Lucia. Well, yeah, so there's a, there's this growing crowd of sort of uh, independent icons who are who are saying, no, 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 he, she's not our preferred candidate, this other person is. I think the one other thing that I think is useful to dwell on as well, and the polls kind of reflect this, there's a good reason to think that all other things being equal, Phelps would do better on preferences than Labor, which I think you've you touched on this, William, but it's worth kind of explaining why. Basically being that if, if Labor is knocked out, you would expect most of the centre-left vote to go to Phelps. And this is the final count where it's just Phelps against Sharma. Uh, you would expect a pretty solid, very high preference flow. Uh, you, you could expect her to get like 80% of the preference flow because most of those votes would be centre-left votes. They'd be Greens votes, Labor votes, Heath votes. Mm. Plus there's a bunch of other centre-left minor parties. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Whereas if Labor is in the top two, Phelps voters, whether or not, whatever preference decision she makes, you would expect a big chunk of those voters to scatter. So whether she'd preference Labour or Liberal or an open ticketed in this electorate, I think regardless, you would see those votes scatter. So in that situation, you would expect uh, Phelps to have a better chance of winning for any particular primary vote than Murray would uh, if she can get to that count. But right now, that's a, that's a big unknown. Yeah, this goes back to the caution I expressed about the two-party preferred totals we're seeing coming out of these reach-tell polls, which, are, as, you, as you touched upon before, are based on respondent allocation, which may not be a very reliable replicator of what people are going to do in the actual polling booth. And, uh, you know, I, I think 80% is a good rule of thumb for the amount of preferences Karen Phelps would be likely to get. Or this year, Heath, you know, maybe there is enough momentum building behind her that I'm, you know, not giving her enough due. But uh, if it does end up being liberal versus independent, then yeah, I think 80% is a pretty good rule of thumb for the amount of preferences that are going to go to the independent ahead of the liberal. Uh, liberal versus Labor, as you say, it would be a lot more even, and given the amount of primary vote that's clearly going to separate the liberal from the Labor candidate, who's, you know, maybe on 20%, that's why I hesitate to believe these near 50-50 two-party results we're getting out of the reach tells uh, two-party measures, which don't have a very good record. And uh, I think pretty clearly in this case, they're overestimating the amount of preferences Labor would get. We're going to return to the Wentworth by-election again in two weeks, and then we're going to have a post-election results uh, podcast. But we're going to leave Wentworth for now, and we're going to talk briefly about the Victorian state election. So this is the first of three big elections we're expecting in the next year, um, alongside New South Wales and the federal election. And it's due on the 24th of November. So the first term Labor government led by Premier Daniel, Daniel Andrews will be facing off against Matthew Guy's Liberal National Coalition. Labor has led in every statewide poll this year, but usually not by much. YouGov poll in September gave Labor 53% of the two-party preferred vote, but the last five polls put them on 51 or 52%. Uh, William, how do you rate Labor's chances of winning a second term at this time? 
Pretty good. I think they're likely to. Um, with in, not in particularly convincing style, though. They've got a lot of baggage. They've probably accumulated more than their fair share of scandals. Um, and uh, I, I think, you know, a lot's been made in the media about the, the sort of crime gangs issue. I, I, it's probably making more noise in media than it is out in, in voter land. It's an issue, though, and, you know, they, they've got a few negatives. I think the main thing usually in state election issues are things to do with the electoral cycle. And uh, in that respect, there's a lot in common with the Queensland election here in that this is a first-term government. Ordinarily, you expect a first-term state government to win pretty handsomely. This is a bit different, as was Queensland, though, because Labor have been so dominant for such a long time. Labor have been in power for all but one term over the last 20 years. So while they're a first-term government, they're, they're a first-term government that still sort of carries the baggage of the, the, the Labor government before it so you're not you normally first term you, you get re-elected very comfortably but I, I don't i think we're looking at a status quo result because those sorts of factors you know the, the problems that the government has are cancelled out by the fact that you've got a unpopular liberal government at federal level they are still you know not electorally recovered from the leadership change so though those sorts of you know federal state cross-pollination things you know it's it's it, you're, you're always better off in state politics to have a party of the opposite stripe in in power in Canberra. So Labor have got that advantage. So uh, weigh all those things together, and I and uh, together with the evidence of the polls, the polls do seem to pr point to a pretty status quo sort of result, where you know Labor doesn't have a thumping win, but you know fifty one forty nine, you know uh, enough to get to, to scrabble a majority together. I completely agree with Dorian's analysis of um, of what's happened to play in Victoria. Um, I think Daniel Andrews is a really pretty gun campaigner um, in comparison to other Labor state and territory governments. Mm. Um, I think his messaging is very much focused on housing and housing issues and what he can do, renters' rights. I think he knows his audience quite well. Um, and I've seen in the past couple of days some piggybacking of what federal labor is doing um, and recreating issues around childcare, education, um, some really heartland labor, labor messaging. Mm. Um, the one thing I've had is I'm very interested to see how the Greens perform in Victoria in the state election. Um, I could see the Greens losing some lower house seats mm -hmm. um, and going back to labor. I think when people vote labor in, they vote labor in convincingly. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So the, the Greens hold three uh, seats in the lower house in Victoria, as well as five upper house seats. I mean, we saw following the Northcote by-election, Labor did a lot better in the overlapping Batman by-election. And the Greens did very well in the upper house election last time, winning seats in all five of the metropolitan regions. So that, that would also be a very interesting one to watch. Any particular issues that you've seen around Labor and the Greens? I'm just, I'm, I'm just quite interesting um, in what's emerge between the Northcote by-election and the Batman by-election, the issues emerging in the Darabin branch and the kind of erosion of party confidence and internal party trust um, to see how that replicates in the Northcote electorate mm. during the state election and if um, they'll be able to hold that seat. And the Greens have generally done better in Melbourne than in other other big cities, more, more at the federal level than 
state. Yes. This is kind of the kind of heartland of the Greens push, and clearly Labor has made a big effort to win some of those voters back. I could be proven wrong about this, but I'm sort of impressed by the long-term flow to the Greens, which has, in the inner-city areas... You know, the Greens have been pretty stagnant in terms of aggregate votes since about 2010. But in actual inner areas, inner city areas, their rise has been pretty much unabated to the extent that they've overcome the hurdle of the fact that the Liberals have flipped on preferences. The Liberals used to put Labor last. Then in 2010, they started putting the Greens last. But that tied to the Greens kept on accumulating to the extent that it overcame that, which was a quite impressive electoral accomplishment for them. In terms of Batman versus Northcote, I, I, I think from memory, if you looked at just the Northcote part of the Batman electorate, the Greens almost replicated their performance at the Batman by-election. It was north of Bell Street in the sort of Preston Reservoir area. That That's where Batman is a tougher prospect for the Greens than Northcote is. Oh, yeah, of course. And don't get me wrong. Like, they, they aren't, you know, those figures don't suggest that they're on track for a disastrous result, but it does indicate that this sort of inexorable rise in the Greens' vote has, has been kind of halted recently. It has, but you know, if if you, as I say, if you look at inner urban, inner city areas, uh, maybe it's starting to taper off now. But the the the, the increase in green support, you know, you're getting a, a greater cultural concentration of younger people, of university students, the kind of old working class of these areas are dying off. And that process is, even though the Greens in aggregate aren't, you know, going in leaps and bounds anymore, in this particular geographic concentration in the centre of the big cities, uh, you know, they, they, they were still seen to be going from strength to strength, notwithstanding the mild reverse of the Batman by-election, part of which was to do with Labor trading in David Feeney and getting in Jed Kearney. Part of what happened in Batman was that the the Greens lost ground at the southern end of the electorate, which is more of their heartland, while still gaining ground in the less friendly northern bits. And I think that was a candidate issue. You know, I don't think it was a sudden decline in the Greens' fortunes. That was a case of Labor getting rid of a campaign who was extremely unattractive to, to inner city voters and, you know, getting one who was extremely attractive to them. And I think that's the lesson here, that, you know, Labor can't put factional hacks into the inner city cities. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. And, uh, you know, just a lot depends on candidate selection. And there are parallels here, actually, I think, with Wentworth. In that, you know, maybe it's there's a lot of talk about how the, the Liberals are under pressure in the Melbourne seat of Higgins. Kelly O'Dwyer is there. Kelly O'Dwyer is a good, attractive candidate for that electorate. I think she can defend it. But there was talk of getting rid of her and putting in Peter Credlin. You know, I, I, that would have been a disastrous decision. And I don't think that the Liberals have hit the jackpot with Dave Sharma in Wentworth. I, know, I think he's a very lacklustre candidate. He doesn't present the kind of image that the Liberal Party needed to present in Wentworth right at the moment. And I think maybe Labor have learned the lesson. They've lost these seats to the Greens. So that they've learned, they've learned 
that you know if we put up a Kearney, you know, then then we're a show. If we put up a David Feeney, then we're in trouble. So uh, I guess maybe the, the the moral of the story here is whether how well the Greens do in these electorates has a lot to do with who Labor chooses to run in them. Yeah, and that's certainly a factor for them in like Sydney, for example. Uh, obviously, Plibersek and Albanese have much higher profiles and. Labor generally was capable of running candidates in the lower house in the state system who also uh, were reasonably progressive Labor candidates, but they had much lower profiles, they had much less uh, credibility, um, and it made it easier for the Greens to kind of overcome that. But it does make a big difference who Labor stands. The other thing I would say as well is that what you were saying about the concentration of the Greens vote is interesting because I don't know if it reflects as well that the Greens have got a better sense of who the demographic is that votes for them, or just that those voters, they've been making more strides with that community. I mean, I think, you know, the Greens still have a lot of policies that theoretically appeal to a working class out of suburban left electorate, but the the policies that they focus on and the, the kind of community that they represent, clearly that community is a kind of middle-class, progressive, relatively wealthy demographic. And if, if the Greens are doing a better job of concentrating that vote in that area, it's entirely possible they could win a bunch more seats. Like, you know, it would take them a while, but holding five to ten seats amongst that kind of electorate um, at a federal level, that, that would probably be the absolute maximum. But that would make a massive difference to how federal elections would work in this country if the Greens were able to concentrate that vote. And it doesn't necessarily require a massive increase in their overall national vote. It just requires kind of a... A concentration, trading away some votes in some places and gaining them in others. And I don't, I don't know how conscious that is at all levels in the Greens, but it's certainly an effect that we've been seeing. Yeah, I think the Greens have got to ultimately stick to what they're good at. And, you know, I there were certain utopian visions going on in the Greens maybe 10 years ago that, you know, we are going to be a major party one day. I think that simply isn't what the Greens is. You know, I think they are a minor party. They are a party that's going to, to but they, I think to an extent we saw them lose support in 2013 because they'd been seen as too close to government and they've had a big decline in Tasmania. So, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, they, they fundamentally are a party of kind of liberal middle-class people. And what we're seeing is that the, the demographics of inner cities, uh, city areas are now making seats there winnable for them without them fundamentally changing changing that kind of 10% share of the vote that they've got. I know uh, the media talks a lot, and it's been a, quite a present discussion recently about ideological crises in the Greens. Something we haven't seen, and I could anticipate it becoming another ideological crisis, is um, the way they structure their campaigns, whether they're talking about the party, the policy, or moving towards a campaign structure where they talk um, about kind of the identity politics and talk about the candidate as individuals. Um, those kind of campaigns, which you're starting to see a little bit more of, um, are in, aren't ideologically aligned with how the Greens structure themselves. They're structuring campaigns around the individual candidate, although strategically might work better for them. It does seem in a discord with what their principles of the party are. Yeah, I think in, at a by-election like the Northcote by-election, you know, that kind of identity politics thing does play well because a by-election is very much about who the candidate is. But, you know, when you, you, you have to go wide at a state election or a federal election, and, uh, you know, then I, that's, I guess, is when you run into the limitations of doing that. And the Senate is always going to be an important part of campaigning for the Greens. So I think, I think that can go too far where they start to focus so much on these seats. 
and that makes sense as long as they take for granted winning these Senate seats. But you know, you can't guarantee uh, that the Greens are going to keep winning those seats. I haven't heard anything. I'm a bit out of the loop. I haven't heard anything lately about the notion that the Liberals might not field candidates in these inner city seats. Um, has, has anything been heard of that lately? Because no. that really could change the dynamic here. Yeah, I, I haven't heard anything about that for a while. That was a thing a little yeah. while ago about the idea that that would be their way of sitting out this kind of dilemma that they have about which of the whether they preference the greens or labor yeah so i mean that's something you know that's a bit of a wild card in relation to these inner city seats that we were discussing and uh, we'll just have to wait and see what the liberals decide on that i guess so for people who are interested in this uh there's actually i've already published on my website a list of candidates who've, who've been announced so far so for example in brunswick there is no liberal candidate currently on the list melbourne no liberal uh, Northcote, no Liberal. Richmond, no Liberal. So that doesn't mean they're not running. These are obviously like low priority seats where they may all decide at the last minute. But this, the possibility that they might not run is still open to them. Um, and that's something we certainly will watch. So we're going to return to the Victorian state election in a couple of upcoming episodes. We're going to be diving into particular elements of the election. Um, but if you're interested in more, you can actually visit my website, thetallyroom.com.au slash Vic2018, where I've just finished publishing the guide to the Victorian state election. The guide features profiles of all 88 lower house seats in all eight upper house regions, and there's well over 200 candidates already listed. So um, you can definitely check that out if you're interested. And now we're going we're gonna to leave this uh, episode now. So um, that's about it for this episode of the Telegram Podcast. Thank you to both Georgia and William for joining me. William, um, so where can people find you online? Polbludger.net, P-O-L-L-B-L-U-D-G-E-R, which is also my Twitter handle. Cool. And I'm sure you'll be covering the Victorian election on election night. Most certainly. Well, um, that's where people can go because I will not because... Um, I have a wedding that night and will not be available. Um, so, Georgia, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. My name is Georgia Katchuk. Uh, don't assume you know how to spell it. It's uh, Georgia, T-K-A-C-H-U-K. I'm occasionally tweeting about politics. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode and once again, thanks for listening.